0: Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso, Cottage Grove, KEPW Eugene, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, PRR, WPRR, Norlands, W-H-I-V, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle, Washington on KODX, Red Bluff, Redding, California KFOI, Round Mountain, California KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. And Coast to Coast and Around the Globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media, Weekly, FYI Nation, Nicholsandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing the Globe, five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com, but you have me, Angie Cuero. I host In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these fine stations and streams. The shutdown grinds on, Trump digs in, Schumer and Pelosi ain't having it, Apple is the latest company to get burned by Trump's tariff war. Mitt Romney is still an opportunistic, disingenuous waste of space. Elizabeth Warren says she is serious about running. And Jane Curtin has the best New Year's resolution ever.
1: My New Year's resolution is to make sure that the Republican Party
0: dies. Welcome to today's broadcast. Trump has backed off, backing off the amount he's demanding for his toy wall. He is, again, demanding $5 billion. He was demanding $5 billion. Then Elf on the Shelf Pence politely proffered a demand closer to $2 billion. Trump's back at 5 again. Here he is, addressing his demands at a cabinet meeting Wednesday morning. Now, as usual, note not just whatever answer he's trying to get at, but how long it takes him to get there, how many detours he takes, And what impression he leaves as to his own depth of thought and comprehension of the issue at hand.
2: Well, I'd rather not say it. Uh, Could we do it for a little bit less? It's so insignificant compared to what we're talking about. You know, I've heard numbers as high as $275 billion we lose on illegal immigration. And here you have a wall where you're talking about to complete. Because, again, a lot has already been done. You know, we've been getting money in somebody said that we didn't spend the money well we have spent it but we don't pay contractors before they finish the job that's one of the other things that pat and i sort of instituted we like to have people do the work so if we're building a wall we're paying as they build it we pay it when it's finished so they do a good job this way if they don't do a good job we don't pay them so not all of the money has been paid but the money has been used so maybe you guys can remember that when you say that i haven't spent the money we spent the money we want to finish it up. Uh, the $5 billion, $5.6 billion approved by the House is such a small amount compared to the level of the problem. When you see that the Democrats want to give away $12 billion extra and we're giving away $54 billion in foreign aid, so we give money to countries, but we don't give money to our own country, which is another thing that I've been complaining about, and we're cutting that back. It's very unfair when we give money to Guatemala and to Honduras and to El Salvador. And they do nothing for us when we give money to pakistan 1.3 billion dollars i ended that a lot of people don't know it because they haven't been fair to us we want to have a great relationship with pakistan but they house the enemy they take care of the enemy we just can't do that so i look forward to meeting with the folks from and the new leadership in Pakistan. will be doing that in the not-too-distant future. But I ended the $1.3 billion that we paid like it was water. We just pay it to Pakistan. So I ended that. And we ended a lot of other money that's being uh, sent out on a monthly basis and a yearly basis to countries that don't even vote for us in the United Nations. We give them billions of dollars. They don't even vote for us in the United Nations. But we want something to help certain countries.
3: Donald Trump has you know, some tough it's not words all about from the rich Mitt countries because the rich the countries Senator really do take Lake-
2: advantage of us because they pay a very small percentage of their military and they cheat on trade. They take advantage of us on trade. Other than that they're wonderful, okay? But there are countries that are poor that we will come we don't want anything from them. We want to help them. There's some horrible things going on in the world and we want to help those people. We don't want money from them. We don't want that. We're not looking for that. But when you have massively wealthy countries that have very low military costs because the United States subsidizes them. So they take advantage of us on military. They could easily pay us the full amounts. And they also take advantage of us on trade. So when I speak up, I mean, that's why I got elected. Issues like that, issues like the border.
0: By the way, did you note his someone said about the per- proposed reduction to $2 billion? Yeah, that someone was Pants. Maybe. Trump should meet him sometime. He did meet today with incoming Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer, along with Congressman Stanley Hoyer and Senator Dick Durbin. Here's a bit of what they had to say outside after their meeting about border security, the wall. And this is from Live News Now.
4: Tomorrow, we will bring to the floor legislation which will open up government. It will be based on actions taken by the Republican Senate of bills that have passed on the floor of the Senate by over 90 votes and or in committee uh, unanimously, uh, led by Senator Mitch McConnell. It will also uh, present in a separate bill, uh, the bill that Mr. McConnell did for the continuing resolution for the Homeland Security bill until February 8th, using his exact date. Uh, We have given We have given the Republicans a chance to take yes for an answer. We have taken their proposals, unamended by any House bipartisan uh, amendments, but, but just staying true to what the Senate has already done. Our question to the President and to the Republicans is, why don't you accept what you have already done to open up government, and that enables us to have 30 days to negotiate for border security. Democrats have been committed to protecting our borders. It's the oath of office we take to protect and defend. It has been very important to us, and we have committed resources to it when we were in the majority and will continue to do so. Is it, is it right? like no, 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 no.
3: You're going to let us each speak. Please.
4: So, please. I'll yield to Go the Senate. Yeah, thank
3: TV. you. So the bottom line is very simple. We asked the President to support the bills that we support, that will open up government. We asked him to give us one good reason. I asked him directly. I said, Mr. President, give me one good reason why you should continue your shutdown of the the eight cabinet departments while we are debating our differences on homeland security. He could not give a good answer. So we would hope that they would reconsider and would support the very bills that passed the Senate, four of them 92 to six, two of them unanimously in the Appropriations Committee with Mitch McConnell's support. The only reason that they are shutting down the government is very simple. They want to try and leverage that shutdown into their proposals on home on border security we have we want strong border security we believe ours are better but to use the shutdown as hostage which they had no argument against is wrong and we would urge them respectfully to reconsider and support these bills which are bipartisan one of which Mitch McConnell proposed open up the government as we continue to debate what is the best way to secure our border. (laughs) We hope it doesn't. And we hope that they will not use the American people, the millions who depend on these eight departments, and the workers who are either not working or not getting paid as hostages to have a temper tantrum, pound the table and say, it's our way, well, we hurt all these people. We hope that won't happen. And again, they couldn't give us one answer why they wouldn't support the first bill that Leader Pelosi and Leader, uh, that Speaker Pelosi and Leader Hoyer will put on the floor that will open up the government. Let let, let me me Uh, add uh,
5: this.
2: Let me add this. Almost everybody in the room, I don't want to say everybody, believes that shutting down government is a stupid public policy. It puts 800,000 people uh, who work for the federal government at risk, and it puts millions of people who rely on the federal government on a daily basis at risk. We 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 are going to propose tomorrow a bill that has gotten the support of the Senate. And the House.
0: But the White House says it's a non-starter, sir. So why move forward?
2: Because that is our responsibility as a co-equal branch of government to do that which president we he's think not is right.
3: Sign the mail, what's the point? We, hope, we
2: hope he will compromise. Does he ought to compromise. We are for border security, but we are also for operating the people's government
3: in an effective when, when, when fashion.
2: When,
3: when the bottom line. The bottom line is very simple. At our last meeting, the president said, "I am going to shut the government down." They are now feeling the heat. It is not helping the president, it is not helping the Republicans to be the owners of this shutdown. Today we gave them an opportunity to get out of that and open up the government as we debate border security. And to say to them, because he says he won't sign it and use the government as hostage, we should just give in, the American people don't want that. That's bad for our country and that's not the way to govern.
4: We're asking uh, we're, a- we're asking the President to open up government. We are giving him a Republican path to do that. Why would he not do it? Exactly. Why would he not do it?
0: Just to reiterate, what the House Dems will propose is consistent with what the Senate GOP asked for before the holidays. That is as close to bipartisan harmony as we get these days. But, as any qualified psychologist or professional will tell you, malignant narcissists are rarely moved by reason, nor by others forming a united reasonable front. makes no difference until and unless Trump finds a way to back down and make it look like his idea, we are stuck where we are. CNBC has this, which does Trump no favors as it underlines all of his contradictions on the subject. Again, CNBC, quote, the shutdown will drag on for now as the new Congress starts and hundreds of thousands of federal workers face missed paychecks. Trump invited congressional leaders back to the White House for negotiations come this Friday. But based on their comments Wednesday, it may take a while for lawmakers to crack the impasse before the briefing Wednesday. Trump insisted on more than $5 billion in border wall funding, a figure Democrats say they will not accept. The president tried to pin the blame for the closure on the Democrats, despite the fact he said last month he would, quote, be proud to shut down the government for border security. They quote Schumer outside the meeting as saying the bottom line is very simple. At our last meeting, the president said, well, you just heard that from Schumer. A senior White House official, we're back on CNBC here, described the meeting as contentious at times, but added it ended on a positive note. With no specifics there, I'm assuming it's that they all got to leave. The official said the negotiators got a, quote, better understanding of where their counterparts stand. Senior White House official, you know, at that level of nothing burger spin, you'd think they could just identify themselves, but anyway... Back to CNBC's coverage. Challenges abound in trying to bridge the divide over the wall. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell stressed his chamber will not vote on the plan the House aims to pass Thursday because Trump has signaled he will not sign it. He said he did not think any particular progress was made today. However, he said we're hopeful someone in the coming days and weeks will be able to reach an agreement. That's somehow in the coming days and weeks. And again, to some of the contradictions at hand and, and to what kind of progress at least the Democrats have made some effort here. Democrats previously offered to put $1.6 billion toward border security, but not a wall, as Trump proposes in the spending plan. The White House then floated $2.5 billion in funding, but Democrats rejected that offer. Trump signaled on Wednesday he would not accept anything other than the $5 billion for his proposed wall. So everybody is noticing the back and forth here. They also note, quote, Trump's own messaging muddied his push for a wall as the talk stalled over the holidays. He's not made it clear what exactly he wants, calling it various times for a concrete barrier, fencing or a structure made of steel slats or one made of cotton candy. I just added that. A tweet Wednesday morning says also raised questions about why Trump still demands taxpayer money for the wall. He claimed Mexico is paying for the wall through a replacement of the North America Free Trade Agreement. The Trump administration and Congress still needs to approve the deal for it to take effect. There's more. It's at CNBC. But it's nice to see them called out. It really is. Washington Post is doing a great deal of that today, too. Fact-checking, fact-checking, fact-checking. Boy, I wish we had that before the election. Wouldn't that have been marvelous? Stick around for my conversation with both Dave Johnson and another with Sarah Kenzior after that about what we could have seen before the election that would have made life a lot better. Speaker Pelosi, I love saying that, made the Democrats' position absolutely clear in an interview with The Today Show. Are you willing to come up and give him some of this money for the wall, because no. apparently that's the sticking no. point.
4: No, nothing for the wall. We're talking about border security. Nothing for the wall, but that means it's well, a we non-starter. can go through this back and forth, mm-hmm. no. How many more times can we say no? Nothing for the world.
0: Not everyone is in harmony as the Dems take over the House. Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and Ro Khanna have both taken issue with some of the rules proposed, and I'll have more on that in a few minutes with Dave Johnson. But meanwhile, this from NPR on other House rule changes that are not going to be as contentious. The Dems will revive the Gebhardt Rule, introduced in the late 1970s, that automatically raises the debt ceiling, the nation's borrowing limit, once the House passes a budget. NPR explains why this is important. The House Republicans preferred to force votes to approve debt ceiling increases in an effort to bring more accountability. Why don't they say alleged? In an alleged effort to bring more accountability and political pressure to reduce the nation's deficit and debt. However, that decision never resulted in reduced spending and only added to a culture of brinkmanship. Well, that's why they did it. Anyway, moving on. The rules change greatly diminishes the odds of a default threat in the new divided Congress. Additionally, Democrats are changing rules regarding motions to vacate the chair, a procedural tool that could be used to force out a sitting House Speaker. Hmm. It is a procedural weapon, they say, that conservatives led by Mark Meadows were planning to use to try to oust Speaker John Boehner before he made the decision to step down. Democrats plan to tweak the rules so that a motion to vacate can only be offered on the floor if a majority of either the House Republican Conference or the House Democratic Congress agrees to do so. And as we saw coming, the change limits the ability of any one member to wreak havoc on the floor and ultimately bolsters incoming House Speaker Nancy Pelosi against potential agitators in either party. I'm Angie Coro. Stick around. There's more to come on the Bradcast.
5: Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. To make a one-time donation, or even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks.
0: It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Carter. Brad and Desi are enjoying a bit of the holidays still. They're on their way home, so on the road... Meantime, you know, when I heard Elizabeth Warren was running, my first thought was, i got to talk to Dave Johnson. (laughs) Dave writes for Seeing the Forest, his own blog. He's also on We Can Have Nice Things, look for that blog as well, on modern monetary theory. i got to ask him what that is. But first off, I have to ask Dave Johnson about Elizabeth Warren. Dave, welcome back to the show.
6: Hey, thanks for having me on, Angie.
0: So, Elizabeth Warren, I have had her on my dream ticket for some time because, to me, she has been one of those people who walks... The talk. She's willing to get in people's faces. She's willing to stand up for the consumer. She's actively pushed through hearings and worked to push through le- legislation that makes a difference. Uh, she's been stymied most recently by the changes the Republicans have wrought. Still, in all, I'm happy to see her running. What about you?
6: Oh, I'm really happy. Uh, she's the real thing. Okay, she is. She has the authenticity. You know, Bernie. Everybody knew Bernie been working on these things forever. She has that same authenticity. And in the last uh, Congress, she introduced uh, an anti-corruption bill that is wonderful. It cracks down on all kinds of things involving money with Congress, and she introduced what's called the Accountable Capitalism Act, which really clamps down on corporate governance, changes the way corporations are governed, uh, requires workers on the boards of the corporations, all kinds of things about what corporations can and can't do that's great. She means it, and she's introducing the right things as well. That's that's my opinion on, on Warren. We'll see how she does with that.
0: What does that mean about the powers that will align against her?
6: Oh, well, the same powers are going to align against any Democrat, whatever they offer, whether they offer programs that are good or programs that are bad, so I'm not, I'm not too worried about that.
0: Well, that talks us right into our next topic, because you and I really want to talk about Beto O'Rourke, and as we have seen, the powers that would align against Warren might be a little more favorable to him.
6: Well, we, we had this whole fluff-fluff thing uh, on online, especially on Twitter, over the last uh, week or two. What happened was a guy named David Sirota, a journalist, wrote uh, a column where he had gone and looked into the financing of... Beto and found out he was the number two recipient of oil and gas money. Now, let's make some distinctions. First, just because an employee gives money to a guy, that doesn't mean that the or to, you know, to a candidate. It doesn't mean that the industry is giving it. OK, there might be thousands and thousands of people giving 50 bucks. It adds up, but it doesn't mean some industry is supported. But Beto had signed a pledge called the No Fossil Fuel Money Pledge, something like that. Now, what it says is you can't accept more than $200 because, you know, regular working people don't tend to give more than $200. And when you start getting into these large donations from industry executives, that's when you're starting to see the influence game starting to be played. And he had violated that pledge with a lot of donations over $200, okay? Mm -hmm. Then he voted for certain uh, fossil fuel interests. Now, David Sirota... Long ago, worked in Bernie Sanders' Senate office, and so all of a sudden there was this huge swarm of people saying, Bernie's pulling the strings and getting his supporters to slam Beto O'Rourke uh, because he's going to run against Bernie, and just a bunch of stuff like that. Now, let me take, I'm going to go to a 50,000-foot a overview of this. Okay. What I see from that is that climate is going to be a hot stove issue in this campaign okay all kinds of people responded when sirota wrote hey this guy's taking fossil fuel money from you know in larger amounts than he should and the other side of the thing was the way that the bernie people were stomped on it was called a big conspiracy with bernie pulling the strings and and Bernie World was coordinating an attack on Beto. Now, one person wrote one thing, okay? Mm-hmm. But everybody in Clinton World <laughs> stomped on him calling it coordinated. Okay, so I suspect, you know, we are seeing the beginnings of a, of a uh, 20, 2020 uh, primary campaign,
0: and it's going to
6: be a bad one. But, look, Beto's great. Bernie's great. Elizabeth Warren's great. I think that Beto has touched the hot stove and isn't going to be taking any more fossil fuel money after this. And I think a lot of the other candidates are seeing this, too. So so that's my overview of what we're seeing. There's some hot stove issues that people are just starting to learn about for the campaign.
0: Let let me pick up on some of that. Uh, Over at GQ, there's a really worthwhile article by uh, Luke Darby. He pointed out, first, it's important to get the backstory out of the way. There's no evidence Sanders is directing or supporting tacitly or otherwise a shadow war against O'Rourke's presidential run. That whole idea started because of a tweet from the director of the biggest liberal think tank in the country, the Center for American Progress, which has a spotty track record of actually supporting progressive goals or candidates. Cap director and Hillary Crusader near a tandem took it to 11, calling on Bernie Sanders to repudiate, quote, such attacks by his supporters. She followed up by saying, I have no candidate in 2020. We can't destroy whoever the nominee is. Now, here's the payoff it's akin to saying no one is allowed to critique any Democrat ever in case they may eventually run for president. I find that interesting because there's going to be—we've already seen it. We're going to see it again. This digging back into saying one person did one thing ever, and therefore we don't even want to look at them to run for president. Shall I say purity test? So take it from there.
6: All right. Well, first of all, she's attacking Bernie in that whole thing. Right. So you know. Right. But uh, anyway, whatever. Okay. Pure. This whole purity thing. It's about what you would call incrementalism. If if you if you want to, like, actually change something and you mean it, that's called purity. You can't accept cup watering it down and stuff. Uh, uh, there's some sense to that if you're going to be pragmatic about issues that, uh, you know, old, old issues that don't matter too much if you don't change them. But I talked about these hot stove issues a minute ago. Another one is Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. I think pretty much everyone running now for the Democratic uh, uh, nomination has come out for Medicare for all. Well, or in any way, anyone who hasn't yet learned about the hot stove, because (laughs) that's a hot stove. And if you're against Medicare for all, you're not getting through these primaries. Uh, But my prediction is that the big hot stove issue is going to be climate. That's my sense of it. And the reason for that is because it is the most serious issue. And if you believe, as the scientists have said, if you believe that the planet is warming up because of putting carbon in the air, if you accept that, but you don't accept the other thing the scientists have said, and that is that we've got a few short years to do something about it, and then it is going to require a full-scale, World War II-scale mobilization of all of our resources to fight the climate crisis or else, Mm -hmm. and it means it. If you don't accept that, then you're still not accepting the scientists, and it's still a form of climate denial. We have to do this, and that's starting to really sink in. After what happened in Puerto Rico, you and I were breathing the smoke from the fires at Paradise. Yes. Yes. This is this is real. It is happening. It's 120 degrees in Australia right now. The Arctic uh, was I think it was 85 degrees above normal a while back. So this is a real issue. This is a real issue. We're going to lose cities. We're going to lose Florida, okay, to water. So and that is really sinking in, and especially the younger people like AOC Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has made the Green New Deal a very serious proposal, and it actually is a policy introduced to Congress to fight an actual serious problem. When's the last time you heard about that?
0: Well, I'll put a pin Any in that because I I, I want to get back to the, to the green green uh, yes. energy. But I want to stay with O'Rourke for a minute. There's an interesting article yes. in the Guardian. He's cast key votes with Republicans to boost the fossil fuel industry, whose carbon emissions are at the root of climate the cra- climate crisis. He was one of only a handful of House Democrats who voted for GOP bills to lift the 40-year oil export ban. He voted twice to lift the ban. At the same time, O'Rourke helped Republicans vote down Democratic legislation to prevent drilling in the eastern Gulf of Mexico, and he backed a separate GOP bill to speed up natural gas exports. I get the feeling that if climate is the hot stove issue, he's going to get burned more than once.
6: Well, during the campaign he learned. He uh, came around for a number of progressive policies. He's like number one on immigration. And he also learned that you can campaign as a, as a, I call it a liberal champion in Texas and do really well. So I'm not, I'm not writing him off. He's great. He's got a good instinct. He's got a really good way of talking about things. And I have a feeling he has touched the hot stove and gets it. Uh, and will come around if he's running. We don't know if he's running. He's just a congressman. Yeah, we're we're talking but, about him as
0: if he's running, and yeah, that's that's not official right. yet.
6: So I'm not worried about him. He's he's this ain't going to happen. Um, he's not going to be able to get through the primaries if he continues with these other policies anyway. So,
0: but but I feel like we're I talking. I feel like we're talking about what he has done, what his record shows, as opposed to what he has learned not to say. I mean, a a, right. a, a legislator is what he or she is. And if he is someone who can support GOP legislation and drilling and in favor of utility companies, I don't know why you would feel good about him because of what he's learned not to say.
6: It's not, I don't think it's about what he's learned not to say. I think it's about what he's learned. That's what I'm trying to say. So we're, we're so used to the betrayals. Obama, he campaigned on getting rid of NAFTA, if, if you remember. And then oh, yeah. the day after he won, all of a sudden he said, oh, well, we're not going to get rid of NAFTA after all, stuff like that. People have just gotten so tired of being betrayed by people who talk one way and do another. Things are too important on climate. People aren't going to let it happen. Uh, mm-hmm. People are going to be, You were already seeing people sitting in at Pelosi's office, if you remember that, and things like that.
0: The younger
6: activists have been woken up and are just aren't gonna tolerate this stuff. It's sort of like a Tea Party, call it a purity, but it's not because it's about democracy. It's about the people and about actually solving real problems that we uh, really have. So I'm not worried about uh, Beto O'Rourke just saying something to get through. They're not gonna let that happen.
0: Well, you brought up Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, so let's talk about her. She said that she's voting no on House rules. Uh, that would come under Nancy Pelosi. It's pretty pro-formative vote for the House rules, and what she is objecting to is what's called pay-go, and that's the pay-as-you-go. If you're going to approve an expenditure, you need to compensate for that expenditure by cutting somewhere else or raising taxes. She's one of at least two voices I've heard. Rocana is the other one who's uh, saying that he'd vote against the same rules package. And, of course, she's talking about the Green New Deal. So what does this tell us about her?
6: Well, you asked earlier. It might have been before we got on the air about my new site called We Can Have Nice Things.
0: Yeah, I wanted to know what that was. I don't know what that is yet.
6: Is it .dot com? I think it might be .dot com. But, <laughs> hey, it's
0: your site, buddy. <laughs>
6: okay, it's a site that talks about something called modern monetary theory. I'm doing it with someone you know named Sherry Rezin. Yeah. And it's about, um, and you might have heard the name Stephanie Kelton out there. Mm-hmm. It's it basically comes down to this. The U.S. government prints its own money. We do not round up gold to have to pay for things anymore like kings used to have to do. The U.S. government says we're going to spend $1,000 on this, and they can spend it. We borrow money. We don't even have to borrow money, but we do borrow money. We borrow it in dollars. So there's no chance of the U.S. government going bankrupt. Okay, so the U.S. government sells bonds right now those bonds are in U.S. currency. That means that the country can't go broke, they they can just print the currency to pay off any debts. The real problem with that is that if you put too much currency out there in circulation, then you get inflation. We don't have inflation. There's no inflation at all. We have a $20 trillion of bonds outstanding, no inflation. In fact the markets are telling us they want more bonds because the interest rates are really low. So there's not a problem with raising money. The problem is if you think that you have to round up gold to pay for things.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now, it sounds to me let me let me interrupt there because it sounds to me like you're doing what is very, very important but very, very difficult, is to ask Americans to stand still for a minute and understand how economics work and how the government funds these things, and I'm wondering how hopeful we can be that people will say, you know what, I really don't get that. Let me, let me sit down and learn this, because that's well, essentially there's what you're been doing. This,
6: there's been this game of Republicans come in, they create massive deficits, they give huge tax cuts to the rich, they raise military spending, and then when Democrats get in, they say, oh, there's no more money. There's no more money to do anything with. So if we follow these rules of that you have to cut something to get the money to pay for things, then we don't get infrastructure. We don't get education. We don't get Medicare for all. We don't get any of these things that might cost money. And especially, and most important, that means we don't have any money, supposedly, to fight the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. So it's essential to understand that we have the money. We don't have to be restricted by these pay goals. Pay-go rules. We don't round up gold anymore.
0: And you think that's something that we can we can actually? And I say we because I'm I'm on the same page with you. Do you think that's something we can actually get Americans in their in their busy days and in their political overwhelm to pay attention to?
6: Well, I got a good way to say it. Just say, "Oh, we'll, we'll get the money from where Trump got the money for the tax cuts. Don't worry about it." <laughs>
0: Humor goes a long way.
6: <laughs> Dave, yeah.
0: before I let you go, I just want to ask you a little bit about Bernie. I want to go back to the uh, possible election candidates here. Um, Daniel Marins in Huffington Post has is an interesting theory here. He was talking about the theoretical bashing that Bernie's folks had for Beto's folks. It says there is a specific factor driving the frustration of diehard Berniecrats that's received little attention, the defection of key alumni from Sanders' 2016 presidential run to the Aurora camp and the resulting worry they will provide a progressive coat of paint for the Texans' more moderate record. And Daniel Marin cites both Becky Bond and Zach Malitz, who have already moved over. Does that have any uh, any veracity in your mind?
6: Well, I know, Becky, she wouldn't go work for someone who's just going to say stuff, first
0: mm-hmm. of all. Okay.
6: Second of all, remember, Bernie came into the race late last time, and the reason he came in late was because he was waiting for someone else to come out and voice these policies. Bernie's about the policies. Bernie's not about him being president. Bernie's about, let's get these things done. I'm not worried about this at all. And it could be Bernie's going to see enough people running, voicing the things that we need that he won't run. It could be that he thinks, well, we really need to inject these things into the campaign, so I will run until everybody's talking about these things. So. So, I, I don't see that as kind of what's happening. Becky Bond wasn't behind anything about, you know, or, well, not Becky Bond, but other Bernie people. It was just one guy. Mm-hmm. And it's Bernie, what they're not getting is that the opposition to Wall Street fraud, the demand for doing something about climate, and we have got to get off fossil fuels, those aren't about Bernie. They don't come from Bernie. Mm-hmm. They are the reason people supported Bernie. And the people who supported Bernie did so because they want Medicare for all. They want things done about these things. So that's where this is going to come from in this campaign. They can fight Bernie all they want, but that doesn't fight that we're going to do something about Wall Street fraud, that we're going to do something about the fossil fuel companies.
0: Which brings us to my last question, and that is the Green New Deal. There is no Green New Deal as such. There is no strict structure. There are no specific asks are we in part fighting for who gets to define what that is?
6: Congress will define what that is. We're not fighting for it. We're fighting to do it. Uh, there, there are a number of plans, but it all comes down to the same thing, and that is how do we get, how do we close all the coal plants? How do we move from electric cars, uh, from, from gas cars to electric cars? How do we do all of those kinds of things? How do we do something about factory farming of animals? Because that's a big contributor to the climate crisis. How do we do it? And that is where we are. Experts will come together and say, here's the steps we need. Congress will come together and allocate the funding to do it. It means millions and millions and millions of jobs, by the way. Imagine retrofitting every house and building in the United States to be energy efficient, putting solar on every roof, uh, painting commercial building roofs white. That's a lot of people right there, okay? So you get the idea that the Green New Deal really is about hiring millions and millions of people, but at the end of it, all the things we do make the economy much more efficient and make us wealthier.
0: Well, I hope those are dots that people can connect because we're, we're so mired in, in the name-calling and the, you know, the big gulf. I- I hope that can be heard. I hope that can be heard. And and as always, Dave, I know you're doing your part on that. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. Dave Johnson. I learn something from him every time. His new site we've been talking about is We Can Have Nice Things. He's also writing it. Seeing the forest. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Currow. More around the corner. Stick around. <laughs> It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad and Des today. New York Times Magazine features a Mark Leibovich profile of Harry Reid, which sadly may turn out to be one of the last profiles we see of him while he's alive. Reid has pancreatic cancer. Author and podcaster Sarah Kenzior sees a gaping hole in the piece. Acknowledgments of Reid's early warnings of Donald Trump's corruption and Russian entanglements. From one of her tweets, Reid forcefully warned of Trump's corruption as Trump took office while others in politics and media pretended all would be normal and well. Remember when we all used to talk about normalizing Trump and what a bad deal that would be? And unfortunately, not enough people listened. And now Trump is the new norm. I thought Sarah might have more to say about this. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thanks for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: So let's do remind people of how Reed opened his mouth when so many others were not. What were some of the warnings he was giving us that ended up to be unheeded?
1: Well, Reid was uh, one of the very few American elected officials who was openly describing Trump and his cohorts' relationship with Russia, um, this illicit and probably illegal relationship, before the election. In the summer of 2016, he released an open letter to James Comey begging Comey to inform the American public that Trump had unsavory ties with Russia that the public was entitled to know. And Comey, of course, ignored this. Then Comey released uh, the other letter in late October about uh hillary clinton you know in an issue that turned out to be a kind of non-traversy and that it, it went nowhere, um, to which Harry Reid released another open letter, a follow-up letter, chastising Comey again uh, for keeping this information from the public. And then, of course, you had outlets like the New York Times um, basically elaborating this lie, you know, saying that the FBI had investigated Trump and had found no connection to Russia. So I felt bad uh, for Harry Reid because he was making what seemed like a good faith and brave effort to inform the public what was going on before the election when it really mattered. Um, And it's really shameful uh, that people did not heed his warnings.
0: I think one of the things that bothers me the most about that is we, and when I say we, those of us who were already alarmed that Trump was inching closer to the president's office, and even as we thought, no, this couldn't really happen, we're also feeling very deserted by the people in power who didn't speak up. And I guess what comes up now for me in retrospect is that he did have power. He was connected. He still is connected and didn't get anywhere. I mean, what does that say about all the people around him who could have chimed in at the time?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of the things that I found most disturbing um, about the last few years is it feels like there is an infiltration of people in power where people either feel afraid to speak out or they're complicit uh, as much as the GOP seems to be in backing Trump and trying to cover up for him. Um, and, you know, Harry Reid, he knew he was going to retire. Um, I don't know when he found out about his cancer diagnosis, maybe that played a role um, in speaking out, but he was one of the few who did it. Um, And this is kind of limited to elected officials and people working in government bodies. Because, of course, you had Hillary Clinton calling it out in real time, you know, calling Trump a Putin puppet on the national stage during the third debate there are all these people that say, oh, you know, wow, we didn't know the public wasn't informed. Nobody told us. You know, this is a constant theme of Hillary Clinton's campaign. And I don't even think that she was really trying to campaign on it. You know, this is not a great way to win votes. It sounds like a, you know, a Tom Clancy novel from hell. You know, it sounds absolutely improbable at the time that Trump is a Russian asset. I think she was doing it to warn people. And I think that that's also what Harry Reid was trying to do. And why more people didn't back him up, I don't know. There 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 was kind of a a fledgling effort by the Obama administration on October 7th to uh, come forward with Trump's ties to Russia, but it was overshadowed because that was the day that the Access Hollywood video came out. That was also the day a lot of documents were released by WikiLeaks, and it became lost uh, in the news cycle. But ultimately, you know, Trump's ties with Russia was the most consequential story of the election, uh, and it was buried both by the media and by political officials.
0: You know, it's funny. It's funny you're saying this now because I was following just minutes ago on Twitter. uh, Jill Abramson had come out and talked about the New York Times coverage of Trump and that it was too permeated with opinion, even where it was supposed to be news. And it's erupted on, on Twitter and in other discussions now as to whether that was true, whether they were covering Trump too much from a side of opinion. And what I haven't seen addressed is that perhaps they could have been covering Hillary Clinton's campaign at the same time and maybe we wouldn't be where we are.
1: Yeah, I mean,
0: they wrote a whole
1: lot of stories about emails. They wrote a lot of stories uh, about an inconsequential matter that really has no relevance uh, to what's happening now. I mean, while they were going on about Hillary Clinton uh, using a a non-secure server, we had a a likely Russian asset running for the presidency. We had an infiltration of the Treasury, you know, which we found out a couple weeks ago from BuzzFeed, in which U.S. Treasury officials (laughs) were collaborating with Russia and giving them email. Uh, through Gmail, uh, giving them information through Gmail and Hotmail accounts. You had James Comey using (laughs) his own private server while going to great lengths uh, to go after... Hillary, um, you know, and ultimately, this is not so much about Hillary or vindicating Hillary. This is about our national security, which very few people seem to have a vested interest in at the time. And the problem, of course, is that now we have Trump in power. We have an administration that wants to protect itself. We have a GOP-dominated Congress, um, although that will change in a couple of weeks, that wants to protect itself because it's intrinsically tied to the Trump campaign. You have people, you know, convicted felons like Michael Cohen leading uh, the finances of the Republican National Convention. You have a number of Republicans uh, who are implicated in the probe. kind of brings them all down to investigate it. So there's never really the momentum uh, in the Trump administration and in Congress to investigate this case. They've been trying to get rid of Mueller, you know, for for a year and a half. Um, And so the best chance of stopping this assault um, on our safety and our national national security, was before the election. And yeah, it really is uh, troubling how few people took that chance. Um, and as for this New York Times stuff where they're, you know, saying that uh, I think Jill Abramson said the New York Times was an anti-Trump paper, um, you know, one that doesn't really seem true because they've gone to great lengths to cover up for Trump. You know, that article that I brought up about the FBI is an example. The reporter mm-hmm. for that, Eric Lichtblau, originally wrote it um, telling the truth that, you know, Trump was being investigated for ties to Russia, that they had found stuff the editor-in-chief, uh, Dean Baquette, had them rewrite it so that it said the opposite. And when the public editor of The New York Times, Louis Spade, called that out, they fired her. So, you know, there's definitely strange things afoot uh, at The New York Times, but being anti-Trump isn't really one of them.
0: I have to ask you then, as, as we look forward to, well, no one's really declared per se for the 2020 election yet, but they're, they're getting out there. Um, the, the word is getting out as to who is probably going to run. And in the early hints, I don't hear anybody talking about shoring up our national security, about addressing everything that the Russian intervention has shown us, how vulnerable we are, everything from our voting to our economies to the people in power. I don't hear that coming up yet as an election issue. Do you?
1: Not really, um, I do think it 's too early uh, in the cycle. I honestly wish that these campaigns would start later um, because they tend to devour the news cycle, and a lot of important issues aren 't covered as thoroughly as there should be. But I hope that those who do run and that are focusing on uh, you know crises related to the economy or to jobs realize that this is connected uh, to the trump russia uh, collusion probe. Like these are not separate issues. This is a kleptocracy. This is white collar crime enshrined in a government level. And so these individuals um, in Trump's cabinet have a long history of robbing the American public. Uh, you know, the Treasury Secretary uh, Steve Mnuchin is an example of this. Trump himself is an example of this. And I think if, uh, you know, a candidate is able to tie that together and, you know, say, you know, hey, this is something that affects your life. This isn't just some abstract foreign policy or national security issue. This is something that affects everyday Americans. Uh, then it might hit home um, a little better. But as for now, I'm, I'm waiting to see. I hope that it is brought up uh, during the debates I hope it's not sidelined as, as some sort of, you know, esoteric issue, because it's really important.
0: Reporter and commentator Sarah Kenzior, her book is The View from Flyover Country, which came out earlier last year. She has the podcast Gaslit Nation, which produces once weekly. Sarah, thanks for carving out some time for me.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me on.
0: All right. Take care. Bye-bye.
1: All right. Thank you. Bye.
0: And more from the news. Let's go back to elections. It is already clear that horse racing coverage is not going anywhere. The San Francisco Chronicle is already out of the gate, multiple puns intended. With betting odds on who gets into the White House. Yeah, really, already betting on the odds of who can get in. That's before there's any content actually generated from most of the people that we might see making a move to get into the White House. It's just scary, isn't it? So at the very top of the hour, I mentioned about Apple's anticipated losses. And once again, this is a matter for Trump. We'll go to Business Insider for this. Apple CEO Tim Cook laid some of the blame for the company's shock revenue guidance downgrade on the trade war between the U.S. and China. In an interview with CNBC, Cook said tariffs imposed by the U.S. and China on products from the opposite country contributed to an economic slowdown in China. The Chinese economy slowdown in turn decreases retail sales in the country and hurt Apple's overall business in total. Apple estimated that the revenue for the company's first fiscal quarter would come in around 7.6% lower than a previously expected $84 billion. While Apple did not place the blame completely on the trade war, the company also cited the strong U.S. dollar, reduced battery replacement prices and more, the tariff battle between the U.S. and China appears to have taken its toll on the tech giant and... Business Insider goes on to predict there may still be worries on the trade front for Apple as well. Current U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods do not include many consumer electronics like those manufactured by Apple. Some Apple products were dropped from a preliminary list of goods that were subject to tariffs in September, but Donald Trump told the Wall Street Journal in November that the iPhone and other Apple products could be hit by the next round of tariffs, which would cover the $255 billion in Chinese products not currently involved in the trade war. Are we great again yet? Just checking. Awful lot of attention being paid to Mitt Romney because he said the president isn't what he ought to be. In black. Mitt Romney's an opportunist, and he's probably, I don't know, Let's not even go there. Let's pay attention instead to Lamar Alexander, who also has a Washington Post op-ed. Trump could reopen the government and build a lasting legacy all at once. This one is worth paying attention to. He says, in the summer of 2015, President Barack Obama invited Senator Patty Murray and me to meet with him at the White House. Our conversation that day offers a lesson for resolving the current partial government shutdown. The president wanted to talk about our work in Congress to fix No Child Left Behind. If you think the current impasse on border security is complicated, try setting federal policy for 100,000 public schools. Everyone is an expert. On that day, Obama told Murray and me there were three things that had to be in the legislation for him to sign it. I told the president if he would not oppose the bill as it made its way to Congress, those three things would be in the final bill. On December 10th, Obama signed our legislation into law calling it a Christmas miracle, although there were plenty of other provisions in it he didn't like. You kept your word, he told me. So did you, I said. Why, as a Republican, did I agree to a Democratic president's requests with which I did not concur, because I have read the Constitution and understand that if the president does not sign legislation, it does not become law. I also knew the final law would be what the Wall Street Journal called the largest devolution of federal control to states in a quarter century. Nobody ever suggested shutting down the government to get his or her way. We knew we were elected to get a result if we could. What is the lesson for the story today? What is the lesson in that story for today? First, Democrats should recognize now, as I did with Obama in 2015, that if an elected president has a legitimate objective, they should bend over backward to accommodate it. As for President Trump, he should be specific and reliable As Obama was in 2015, when he told us he needed three things, and after Congress passed legislation that included the president's requests, he signed the bill into law. Then he goes on to include three separate options to increase funding, without increasing funding for the border security, three options to where we can go from here. Give the president the $1.6 billion he asked for in this year's budget request. Provide an additional $1 billion to improve border security, which everyone concedes is necessary. He has some other ones. He goes from the go big, go small, to go really big. But at the end, he says this. Government shutdowns should be as off-limits to budget negotiations as chemical weapons are to warfare. Nevertheless, we are stuck in one resolving it by going real big on immigration could be Trump's Nixon to China, Reagan to the Berlin Wall moment in history. You can read the options and see what the go big is. But again, unfortunately, we're trying to talk reason to a man to whom that has no value and apparently no presence in his character. And on that cheerful note, I let you know that I will be back with you once again on the next show as Brad and Desi continue their holiday trek. I'm Angie Cuero. Good luck, world.